you know the line between genius and maniacal is a matter of perception. It's been said that, that the difference between true genius and insanity is a matter of opinion. And I think that that is true. How, how many of us have known somebody that was just so intelligent and so educated and you're like, well, they're just a little bit off in their common sense category? And I think that holds true when we look at some of the people that have been some extraordinary, extraordinarily intelligent people. For example, some inventors that have invented some incredible things. We look at some of their lives and we see people that were not quite all there when it comes to normal life. For example, I was reading about uh, this man here, Yoshiko Nokomatsu. Probably messed up, messed up his name, but Yoshiko Nokomatsu here on the right is the most prolific inventor of all time. He holds more than 3,000 patents. Now, by comparison, Thomas owned about 1,000 patents. So, Nokomatsu is a prolific inventor, and he's invented so many things that impact your daily lives, you probably aren't even aware of all the things that you use on a daily basis that he has invented. He invented the compact disc. He invented the DVD. He invented the digital watch. He invented the electric taxicab meter. Anybody ever ridden in a taxi and the, and the little meter keeps track of how much you owe? Well, he invented all of those things and many, many more. And so, obviously, he has a, a genius at inventing things like this, but he's a little bit off when it comes to the method in which he invents things. You see, Okamatsu thinks that he believes that invention only happens at the moment of death. Yeah, and so all of his inventions he has invented at the moment of his death. He has uh, discovered that the most efficient way to bring his body near the point of death is by drowning. And so he has his own specialized water tank, and he holds his breath and goes underwater until the moment in which he's about to die. And he says that a half a second before death is when he invents something. And he pops up out of the water, and he invented a special waterproof tablet that he writes down his inventions on. A little weird, huh? The line between genius and insanity sometimes is not so clear. Or what about uh, Nikolai Tesla? You've heard of the name Nikolai Tesla, but you probably are not as familiar with all of the things that Tesla invented that impact your daily lives. For example, Tesla invented alternating current, which we're using right now. He invented, um, the, uh, uh, he, he invented the internal combustion motor. He invented radar technology. He invented wireless technology. I'm using wireless technology right now. He invented so many things that directly impact your lives in a positive way every day that it's hard to even imagine the impact that he's had on your life. Yet, Nikolai Tesla had, uh, a, we should say, maybe a tenuous grasp on reality. You see, Tesla was infatuated with the number three. In fact, he was um, very sickeningly infatuated with the number three. For example... He would, um, he would not enter a building unless he walked around the building three times in a clockwise direction before entering it. He would not enter into a room as he would walk around the edges of the room three times as when he first came in. Every meal that he ate, he would eat with exactly nine napkins in three stacks of three. And he would only eat a meal if the quantity of food that he was served had been measured and the volume of that food was divisible by three. He would not stay in a motel unless the, both the address of the motel and the room number were also divisible by three. So he had a little bit of a hang-up with the number three. He also had a hang-up with circles. You see, he was terrified of circles. You couldn't get anywhere near Tesla with a, with a circle because he had a phobia about circles. So the line between genius, alternating current, radar, wireless technology, and insanity only eats his t of three, sometimes that line is not so easy to discern. Or what about uh, your dictionary? You ever use the dictionary, and you know at the end of the definition of a word, it's got that helpful little sentence where it uses the word in a sentence? Isn't that helpful? Well, dictionaries didn't always do that. And in fact, the first dictionary that decided, you know, it would be helpful if at the end of the de definition we would insert a little sentence that uses this word, in a proper way, right? That's a helpful thing to do. The Oxford English Dictionary was the first dictionary to do this. So you can imagine the task of taking all 
words in the English language and using them properly in a sentence in such a way that lets you know how to use that word in a sentence. Not an easy task, huh? And so the Oxford English Dictionary employed a man by the, by the name of W.C. Miles to compile all of those sentences. A sentence with every word in the English language used properly in a way that clearly shows how to use the word in a sentence. And W.C. Miles did all of that from the Berthoud Asylum for the Mentally Insane, where his permanent home and his permanent residence place. You see, the line between genius and insanity is sometimes hard to discern. I think all of us, like we said earlier, probably know somebody that has such a level of intelligence, perhaps such an IQ, or perhaps are so educated to the point that they're just a little bit off and their grasp of reality is a little bit questionable at times because the line between genius and insanity sometimes is blurred. We come to a story in our Bibles today in which someone believes that Paul has crossed over this line. We're in Acts 25 this morning. <clears throat> if you're using a pew Bible, then just turn to page 934. But in Acts chapter 25 and 26, Festus believes that Paul is so intelligent and so educated that he is actually insane, that he's crazy. And so we'll take a look at this story this morning. Before we start, we remember the context of where we're at. Uh, Paul has been in prison for two years without any convictions, and he has uh, been left in prison by Felix, who wanted to do a favor to the Jews. Festus is now in power. He still wants to do a favor to the Jews. And so Paul, sensing, realizing here that justice will not be served at the hands of Festus, he has appealed to Caesar. And that's where we pick up here in verse 13. of Chapter, five, chapter 25, beginning from verse 13 of Acts. If you're uh, with me here in verse 13, let's begin by reading uh, from verse 13. Now, just to kind of keep in mind, we're going to cover a lot of ground this morning. We've got a chapter and a half to, to get through. And as you'll see as we go through it, this really is all one story. And it would really do damage to the story to try to break it in half and look at it in two chunks. So we really need to get through a chapter and a half this morning. So there's a lot of things in this chapter and a half that we're just going to maybe make note of and keep going. There's a lot of teaching here that we're just going to have to bypass for the sake of time. And we're going to hit high points of the passage. So beginning from verse 13, we read this, Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Felix, or Festus. So into the story come two new characters, Agrippa the king and Bernice. Now Agrippa was the king of the Jews. The king of the Jews was a puppet position that the Romans put into place. And the reason that they had a king of the Jews was because the Jewish people so wrapped up in their Jewish laws, and their Jewish religious laws were so different from the Romans that the Romans literally didn't understand it. They couldn't relate to it. They were, the Romans were polytheists, and they were pagans, and they just didn't understand the intricacies of the Jewish religious law. And so they would have the king of the Jews, and his main role was to sort of be a liaison between the Romans and the Jews in terms of religious matters. The Romans were smart enough to understand that religion was so important to the Jewish people that they couldn't effectively rule them without at least being able to relate to their religious laws. So that's what the king of the Jews was. By the way, that's the title that Pilate gave to Jesus. Remember? King of the Jews. Well, King Agrippa is the official king of the Jews at this point. Now, Agrippa is a Herod, meaning that he came from the Herod dynasty. He's the fourth of four Herods that we find in our Bibles. He is the great-grandson of the first Herod that we find, which was Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king of the Jews when Jesus was born. He was the one, remember, the wise men came to him. He was the one who tried to kill Jesus. He killed the Hebrew baby boys. That was Herod the Great. His nephew was, uh, was Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the one whom Jesus called the fox. You know, he was the one who put John the Baptist to death. That was the nephew of Herod the Great. Then his son was King Herod Agrippa I. Herod Agrippa I was the one that we read about back in chapter 12. He was the one who executed James, and he found that that pleased the Jews so much that he put Peter in prison. You remember him? And then he didn't glorify God, so he died and was eaten by worms. That was his father. That was Herod Agrippa I. His son is Agrippa II, the one that's in our story right now. So Agrippa II, he's one of the Herods, and he was the least notorious of all the Herods. He was the only one that we know of that didn't murder Christians or put Christians in prison. But 
even though he wasn't notorious, was nonetheless still highly, highly immoral. He comes into our story here with, this, with a lady named Bernice. Now, Bernice and Agrippa are a thing. They're an item. And everybody knows that they're an item. They're not married. And the reason that they're not married is because they're brother and sister. And I don't mean half-brother and sister. They have the same mother and the same father. So right now your stomachs are kind of turning a little bit over that. And that's, that, that was Agrippa and Bernice. Full brother, full sister, having a fling together. Right? Well, Bernice was a particularly immoral person. Um, her new flame was Agrippa, but her flame that she had before that was her uncle. So she went from her uncle to her full brother. And after Agrippa, she's going to leave Agrippa, and her next flame is going to be the emperor Titus. The emperor, or the Caesar Titus. The Caesar Titus is the one who eventually comes in and destroys Jerusalem. But he, she, for a while, she's the flame, she's the, the item with the Caesar Titus until Titus has to put her away and send her out of the kingdom of, of Rome. In fact, and he has to do that because there's such an uproar for the fa- over the fact that the Caesar and this highly immoral woman are having a fling. Now that doesn't sound too off the wall until I tell you that the uproar was coming from, guess who? The Roman people. Now when the pagan Romans say, this woman is too immoral for us, then that's saying a whole lot. So this was a highly immoral person, a highly uh, uh, immoral relationship with her and Agrippa, and these are the two that come into the story. Now, the irony is that the, this immoral King Agrippa is the authority on Jewish law. As far as the Romans are concerned, he is the authority. He appoints the high priest, and he is the authority on Roman law. So he comes into the, into the story here in verse 13. Agrippa and the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea, and they greeted Festus, verse 14, and as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying there's a man left prisoner by Felix. Speaking of Paul, who is still prisoner, and Festus has tried to deal with this leftover situation from Felix. However, he knows he's not completely dealt with it yet. Verse 15, And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat in the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with them about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but Paul asserted that he was alive. Being at a loss as to how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. So once Paul appealed to Caesar, it was kind of out of Festus's hands at that point. Festus couldn't then release him. He couldn't say, oh, well, okay, now you're innocent and just, you, can, you can go free. That would make him look like the biggest idiot in the world in the eyes of Caesar. So once he appealed to Caesar... Festus has to send him to Caesar, but Festus has a problem. Let's keep reading. Verse 22, Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So Agrippa says, great. Let me hear this case that has you so puzzled. Uh, Festus, being the non-procrastinator that he is, says, sure, let's do this tomorrow. Verse 23, On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and with the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. So picture here the scene. Luke says, Agrippa and and Bernice come in with great pomp. Doesn't that just paint a picture for you? In my mind, I'm I'm imagining Agrippa and Bernice coming into the room just adorned with the most ridiculous outfits that you can imagine. You've seen on TV these people in Hollywood and uh, red carpet affairs, and they're just wearing these ridiculous clothes in an effort to draw attention to themselves. And I just picture in my mind, Agrippa and Bernice are just wearing these ridiculous get-ups. They come into the room with this great pomp. There's military tribunes. They're probably playing music. Everybody has to stand up when they come in. Their presence has to be announced before they come in. All this pomp and ceremony. And then Paul is brought in. And what an incredible contrast 
there is between Bernice and Agrippa and Paul. We have no biblical descriptions of Paul's physical appearance. But we do have one description of Paul's physical appearance that's not in our Bibles, but it does come from some very early Christian writings, some very early first century Christian writings. And they describe Paul's physical appearance this way. They say he was a short man, rather round. And when he stood up straight, he still hunched over. And when he put his feet together, his knees touched. And he had a hooked nose and one eyebrow. So get that picture in your mind. A man that is anything but physically imposing. Here's a man that physically looks rather unimposing. Not to mention the fact that he's in chains. And then here comes all the pomp and ceremony of Agrippa and Bernice as they come in and trumpets are blowing and people are bowing and people are waving fans so that they don't get too hot and all their clothes are dragging behind them, and here's Paul standing before them. To me, it's a contrast similar to the contrast that we see with Jesus before Pilate. Remember Jesus, black eyes, beard pulled out, hair yanked out, clothes torn off, bloodied up, standing before Pilate, who thinks that he has the authority over Jesus, and Jesus tells him, no, this is, it's the other way around. That's similar to what I see here with Paul before Bernice and Festus. Bernice and, Fe- or Bernice and Agrippa. Bernice and Agrippa think that they are the ones who deserve all the honor and, and they are the ones in authority. And it's really they are standing before a man who represents the kingdom of God. And so all this pomp comes in. It's interesting, this word pomp. You know, the word pomp in the Greek is the word fantasia, from which we get our word fantasy. And it seems to me that there's a lot of fantasy going on. It seems to me that Agrippa and Bernice have a lot of fantasy going on in their mind. They're fantasizing that they are really in authority over the kingdom of God. And they really are in authority over the law of the Jews. But I think that that's fantasy. A lot of pomp is in their mind. So Paul comes in, he's brought in, and Luke describes it as pomp. Now it's it's also interesting to me that this word pomp literally means fleeting, passing away, not lasting. I imagine if we were in that room and we saw the diminutive Apostle Paul in chains standing before Agrippa and Bernice and Festus, we would think this situation is not only bad, but it's rather permanent. This is a lasting thing where the powers that hold power over the Apostle Paul, this This is is an unchanging sort of thing. But Paul reminds the Corinthians in places like 2 Corinthians 4 that we don't look to the things that are seen because the things that are seen are fleeting and they're passing away. We keep our focus on the things that are eternal because the things that are eternal, those are the things that are lasting. They're the things that are not passing away. You see on your television screens every night things that look like they're permanent things that look like they're unchanging, the evil of this world and the powers that hold power in this world, it looks like, boy, that cannot be changed. Just yesterday, the massacre in Nairobi, Kenya, I read this morning, 59 people dead, 175 wounded. And we see those things on our television screens and we say, what can change that? Who can turn this thing around? This seems so permanent. Keep your eyes, folks, on the eternal. Because what is seen, though it may seem permanent, is passing away. So Bernice and Agrippa come in with great pomp. Paul is brought in with all of his humility. And he's he's brought in before them in chains. Now verse 24, And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, as you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting, that he ought not to, be, not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to my Lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, we may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. Yeah, that is unreasonable, Festus. If you're going to send a prisoner to Caesar, you'd best send a letter with him explaining exactly why he's being sent to you and exactly what the charges are. 
And the problem that, that Festus has is he doesn't know. He can't understand the charges against him because Paul has been cleared of all the charges that were launched against him under Roman law. He's been cleared of treason. There's no evidence, no proof of, of any of the charges under the Roman law. And the only thing remaining is the charge that he has blasphemed Jewish law. And Festus doesn't understand those things, ergo King Agrippa, who is the authority on Jewish law. And so his role here is to hear the Apostle Paul and help Festus to know what to write to Caesar so that when Paul gets to Caesar, Caesar knows what he's there for. So, verse 26, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul's now about to speak and is about to defend himself now for the fifth time. And his defense here is going to be just like the other ones. It's going to be much less a defense of Paul and much more a proclamation of the Gospel. And so he begins here in verse 1, then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. You get the picture there of Paul as a skilled orator stretching out his hand, about to begin his speech. Luke is probably in the audience watching this and remembering this and writing this down. Paul stretches out his hand. The chains probably rattle as he lifts up his arm and echoes throughout the hall. And everybody's listening to Paul. You have that picture in your mind. Now, verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you, you're with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. That's your job, King Herod. You are a Jew yourself, though you're a Hellenistic Jew. You weren't born in Israel, but you are a Jew and you should understand these things. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And he continues, verse 4, My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known it for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Paul, again, as he typically does, he points to the, the upstandingness of his personal character. He points to his devotion to Judaism. He points to the fact that he was of the party of the Pharisees, the strictest of all those who observe Jewish law. Paul's not a fringe Jew. He's not a part-time Jew. He was full-blooded. He was a Jew through and through. And Herod should understand this because Herod understands the party of the Pharisees and what they're all about. Then verse 6, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. Paul sees himself as being on trial because he believes the Scriptures. Because I believe the Scriptures, because I believe the promise of the Messiah in the Scriptures, that's why I'm on trial here. To attain our twelve, to, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? You see, the problem that the Jews have with this new Christianity thing is that the Messiah that they claim to worship is a resurrected Messiah, which means that he was a killed Messiah. And Paul says, why is that so hard? Why is that so hard to believe that our God raises the dead? He created you. He sustains your life. Why is it that incredible to believe that He also raises the dead and that He also raised His Messiah? Verse 9, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. Not only I locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. We're thinking, for example, Stephen, right? And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign city. So what he's saying here is, Agrippa, I am not one of these people that just jumps on every newfangled thing that comes along. This Christ thing, this Christian movement, this Jesus-following movement, it's a fairly new thing. And, and, and listen, I'm not one of these that just jumps on every new bandwagon that comes along. In fact, I was one of the strongest opposers of this. I was one of the most, most energetic opposers of this new movement called Christianity. And so if I've been converted by this, then that should mean something to you, Agrippa. You ever known those people that just sort of jump on every new thing that comes along? And then once you sort of figure out that that's their pattern, every time they come to you and they say, hey, I got this new thing. Well, it doesn't mean a whole lot to you because in your mind you're thinking, yeah, 
you jump on every new thing that comes along. But then you may have those, new, those friends that don't jump on every newfangled thing that comes along. And when they, from time to time, come to you and say, hey, listen, I found this thing that you ought to try. It's them that you listen to. And Paul's saying, I'm one of them. And that's how we should all be when it comes to our theology, folks. Christians should not be people that jump on every newfangled bandwagon that comes along. As Paul will say to the Thessalonians in, in your sermon notes, 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test everything, hold fast what is good. Christians are to test everything by the Scriptures. And when newfangled things come along, it doesn't mean they're bad, it doesn't mean they're wrong, it means we test them by the Scriptures. And if they hold water according to the Scriptures, then we can embrace them. If not, we reject them. But so many, isn't that true? So many new things come along. And don't you know Christians that just jump on every sort of new thing that comes along? I remember a few years ago, the prayer of Jabez. Everybody was on the prayer of Jabez bandwagon. Uh, a few years back, you remember the shack? When that book, The Shack, came out, and everybody was saying, oh, this is the greatest book you've ever read. It puts a whole new perspective on God. Well, it put a new perspective on God, all right, because it was an unbiblical perspective on God. And so then that faded away, and now the next new thing came along, and the next new thing came along, and that's sort of the cycle. And some Christians fall for everything that comes along. Not to say things are wrong or bad, but it's to say that they should all be tested. And Paul's saying, that is me. I'm not one that jumped on this new Jesus of Nazareth bandwagon as soon as it came through town. In fact, I was highly opposed to it. Verse 12, In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and, and, to, and those who journeyed with me. So here he's, he's relating once again his Damascus Road experience, the conversion on the road to Damascus. Three times he will relate this, this uh, experience of being converted on the road to Damascus. You get the idea that every time Paul spoke to people, somewhere along the way, the road to Damascus came in there. So verse 14, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now that's a phrase that was used commonly in Paul's day, and the meaning of the phrase was, it is hard for you to deny your destiny. It is hard for you to avoid your destiny. And so Jesus uses this phrase with Paul to say, Paul, it's hard for you to avoid your destiny. And what that is speaking to Paul is that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is pursuing you, Paul. He's pursuing you. And He finally caught up with you on the road to Damascus, just like He pursued you. If you are a child of God, it is because He has pursued you. So it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Verse 15, and I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So there's this turning from darkness to light, turning from Satan to God, Repentance, of course, is all about a turning in one's life. And when we turn, then we're turning away from something and to something else. You know, sometimes we get so wrapped up about what Christianity is turning from, about the whole, all the things that Christians aren't supposed to do and the don'ts of Christianity. But really, following Christ is so much more about what you turn to rather than what you turn from. It's so much more about the light that you turn to than it is about the darkness that you turn from, or the life that you turn to, as opposed to the death that you turn from, or the purpose, the satisfaction, the eternal life, the abundant life that you turn to, rather than what you turn from. And so this is the message for Paul to proclaim, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Another reminder that salvation comes only through the vehicle of faith. Faith is the only means by which the righteousness of God is transferred to us, those who are sanctified by faith in me. Verse 19, Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. There's the obedience. Paul receives this vision of Jesus, and he's obedient to the vision. Right? That's, that's the, the mark of the Christian. Jesus says in John 14, 
My disciples, the one who love me, they are the ones who keep my commands. Verse 20, but declared first to those in Damascus and then to Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and to all the Gentiles, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God. Again, there's that idea of, of what you're turning to. It's much more important than what you're turning from. You're turning to God, to life, and then performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Again, the necessary evidence of a changed life. We talked about this Wednesday night. This past Wednesday night, we're in James chapter 2, and James is talking there about what genuine, authentic faith looks like. And genuine, authentic faith, saving faith, is one that necessarily evidences itself in a changed life. Any faith that doesn't demonstrate itself through a changed life, says James, is not saving faith. That's the same thing Paul is saying here. Performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. If repentance has turned you from Satan to God, then it's common sense that the God whom you've turned to, who is the God that changes lives, that He should necessarily change yours. This is all Paul is saying here. In keeping, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Verse 21, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great. There's the fulfillment of Jesus' words to Paul, you will testify before kings. So I stand here before small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This is the chance Paul's been waiting for. Because when he gave his defense before Felix and Festus, they're both Roman pagans, he can't, he, he cannot quote the Scriptures. He cannot allude to the Scriptures. With, they're Roman. They don't understand, that means nothing to them. Now he's before Herod, who is supposed to understand the Scriptures and know the Scriptures, and now he gets to appeal to the Scriptures saying, listen, I am preaching and teaching nothing that Moses didn't say. That the Christ must suffer and die and rise again from the dead. So here again, he goes right to resurrection. Each time Paul gives his defense, the climax is resurrection. The point is resurrection. Everything hangs on the resurrection. Like he said to the Corinthians, if Jesus hasn't been raised, everything is futile. Everything is worthless. So Paul makes it to the, immediately goes to the resurrection. I proclaim that Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24, And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus, with a loud voice, said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. So Festus has had enough and he interrupts Paul when Paul is still speaking. Paul is now giving, this is the fifth time that Paul has given his defense. He gave it first to the mob, Back in chapter 21, he gave it before the Sanhedrin, before Felix, before Festus, and now before Agrippa. Five times, and I don't think any of those five times has he been allowed to finish. And this time is no exception. Festus has had all he can take, and he interrupts Paul. Paul, you are a nut. He's not calling him an idiot. He's not saying you're stupid. In fact, he's saying you're very intelligent, and you're very educated, and you're very learned. But you are insane. You are not rational. You've lost touch with reality because you know what? Dead people don't rise. Dead people don't rise from the dead, Paul. And this obedience that you have to, to this ancient book that you follow, obedience to the commands of this Messiah that you claim to follow, it causes great suffering in your life and imprisonment and beatings and loss. You are crazy. You're insane. Paul was a highly intelligent man. And Paul was a very educated man. But Festus' accusation that Paul is insane, make no mistake, is not exclusive to Paul. Nor is it exclusive to those Christians who may have higher IQs or higher levels of education. Make sure that you understand all genuine Christians are thought of by the world as being crazy. When the world sees genuine Christianity, 
when the world sees authentic Christ followers, its response is always to say, you are out of your mind. Dead people don't rise. Virgins don't give birth. Oceans don't split. Fish don't swallow people. You're insane. And to give obedience to an ancient book that is so out of step with our culture, that condemns people for their sexual preferences, you're crazy. And obedience to those commands that causes you to suffer loss in this life, you are doubly insane. When the world sees genuine, authentic Christianity, it always thinks you are crazy. That's what they thought about Jesus. Remember? Remember that story from Mark 3? Remember when Jesus is teaching? And Jesus' family, they become so embarrassed over what this man is saying that they go to get him and bring him back home against their will. In your sermon notes here from Mark chapter 3, then uh, the crowd gathered again so that they would not eat, could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him or bind him or tie him up and take him home. For they were saying, He is out of his mind. His earthly family thought he was crazy, including the mother that gave birth to him as a virgin. William Borden was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born into a family fortune that would make all of our eyes spin. Not only that, he had a lot of things going for him. He was a very smart fellow, very intelligent fellow, and a very accomplished person. By 1913, he graduated from both Yale and Princeton. So not only did he have possession of a family fortune and a family name that would get him whatever he wanted in life, he was also very well educated and very well motivated. And everybody thought that he was insane when he gave away his palatial estate near Chicago and gave away all of his half million dollar fortune. 1913, half million dollars is a lot of money. Gave it all away to be a missionary to Muslims. He's lost it. He's insane. Somebody talked some sense to that man. Giving away a half million dollars to go and be a missionary to people that don't even like us? Just as soon kill us as talk to us? He's crazy. They were affirmed in that, so they thought. And six months later, William Borden died from cerebral meningitis that he contracted from the flies in Cairo. This man was a lunatic. To give away a fortune to go and be a missionary to people that don't even like us. That's insane. This is what they said about Jesus. What if the rich young ruler had actually done what Jesus told him to do? You think people would have thought that he was crazy too? Giving away all of your fortune to follow that man who has nothing? When the world sees genuine Christianity, it always thinks that it is insanity. The official position of the old communist Soviet Russia was this. Belief in God is a form of derangement. That was the official state position of communist Soviet Union. Belief in God is a form of derangement. And as a form of derangement, it was then justified to, to, to medicate them with psychotropic medication or to even torture them or other things. Now, lest you think, well, okay, that's the old red Russia, old communist Soviets. This is the good old free U.S. of A. Lest you think that that doesn't exist here. For the last 10 to 15 years, there is a growing Serious discussion among secular psychologists about that very question. Is belief in God a form of delusion? Is radical devotion to religious principles a form of mental disorder? Does one who believes that they can communicate with God, is that a form of schizophrenia? Folks, you think I'm crazy? No pun intended. 
think I'm crazy? I can show you scholarly articles by not fringe kooks, mainline secular psychologists today who are writing openly that belief that you can communicate with God is a form of schizophrenia. And radical devotion to religious principles is a form of mental disorder. The secular psychology world lives and breathes by something called the DSM. The, uh, it's, a, it's a manual that contains all of the mental disorders that psychologists believe are true mental disorders. And every few years, about every ten years, it gets updated. And each time it's updated, you can imagine what happens, more and more things are included by secular psychologists and psychiatrists to, to be valid, authentic mental disorders. Last year it was just updated for the fifth time. So DSM-5 came out last year. And folks, it is creeping ever so much closer to declaring radical devotion to religious principles as a mental disorder. Prophet, I can't tell you the future, but if I had to predict the future, I would say to you that I would not be surprised if within ten years, radical devotion to a religious belief and the belief that you can communicate with God will be classified as official mental disorder. When the world sees genuine Christianity, it always thinks that you are crazy. If the world's perception of you is generally that they're pretty sane, they got their head on level, they're real sensible people, they believe some different things, but they're just real rational, sensible. If that's the world's general perception of you, then who are you following? Who are you following? Paul tells us in Romans 12, verse 1, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Conformity to this, to this world means the world doesn't think that we're crazy. The world thinks that we're just like them. Maybe believe a little bit differently, maybe have some different habits, but we're basically like them. If the world doesn't think you're at least a little bit crazy, who are you following? Because when the world sees genuine Christ followers, it always thinks that they are crazy. And you know what's ironic? Is this doesn't stop at the church doors. I find that many people who think of themselves as Christians, who call themselves as Christians, react the same way when they see genuine Christianity, when they see authentic Christ followers, oftentimes they'll call them the same things that the world calls them. We've had Christians call us crazy. And I don't know, maybe some of you think we're crazy. But when often when genuine when the body of Christ sees authentic Christ followers, oftentimes they think that they're crazy too. Think about Paul. Everybody told Paul, Paul, you're crazy. You're crazy. Same thing with Jesus. Remember, he's on his way to Jerusalem. What does Peter do? Jesus. <laughs> Let me straighten you out. We're not going to Jerusalem. They thought he was crazy too. The Corinthians thought that Paul was crazy. In fact, Paul had to defend himself in his, letter, in his second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For if we are beside ourselves, if we are in our right mind, I'm sorry, if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. In other words, Paul is having to defend his sanity to the Christian, or to the Corinthian Christian. Because some of them thought that he was crazy. Because when the world sees genuine Christianity, it always thinks that that is insanity. It is insane to believe in fairy tales written centuries ago by people who are not nearly as smart as us, writing about things that they didn't understand, Telling you to do things and not do things that are so countercultural to, to our society today. That is insanity. However, look at verse 25. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent fest, but I'm speaking true and rational words. Here's the real irony true insanity is not following Christ. Following Christ with radical devotion is the most sane thing a person can do. Look at what Paul writes to the Romans in your sermon notes from Romans chapter 1. Paul describes the insanity of rejecting God. For what can be known about God is plain to them, 
Because God's shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, His eternal power, divine nature, they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that, that, that have been made, us. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, and they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, Paul says, true insanity is knowing that there is a Creator God who has created you, and you choosing, instead of worshiping Him, you choose to worship the things He's created. That's insanity. True insanity is knowing that a Creator God loves you and has sacrificed Himself for you and has a plan for your life. And yet you say, I've got a better one. That's true insanity. That's true lunacy. To know that a Creator God exists and He is your Creator. And yet you live not for Him, but for yourself. That is genuine lunacy. So Paul says, I'm speaking the most rational things that you'll hear, Agrippa. This is as sane as it gets. Now look at verse 26. Look at Paul's focus on Agrippa here. For the king knows about these things. The king knows this. And to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. Festus is the one who interrupted Paul. Paul's, and, and Paul's response is, I'm not talking to you right now, Festus. I'm talking to him. I'm talking to him. Paul is more concerned with, with Agrippa's soul than he is with his own freedom. I'm talking to him. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. Paul has not cre- preached Christianity in secret. Everywhere he's gone, he's preached it publicly. This hasn't been done in a corner. Verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Look at how he's backed him into a corner. He's backed Agrippa into a theological corner that he can't get out of. Because Agrippa can't say, no, I don't believe the prophets. And he can't say, well, no, I don't believe you. So he's backed Agrippa into a corner like Jesus. Remember how Jesus would always back people into a theological corner? The baptism of John, who do you say it comes from? Heaven or from man, right? And they couldn't answer it because either answer they gave would get them in trouble. So he's backed Agrippa into a theological corner. Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe, he says. So again, like we talked about Wednesday night, belief in orthodox Christianity does not save you. Belief that Jesus is the Son of God, born of a virgin, died on a cross, rose on the third day, ascended unto heaven, that will not save you. James says, saving faith evidences itself in good deeds. So I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa's only response here is to insult Paul. Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are, you short little scrawny prisoner? You, you think that in a few minutes, you're going to convince the king of the Jews that I've been wrong? Who do you think you are? Paul says, I don't care. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for the chains. I would to God that you would become as me, except for the chains. Paul's concern is for nothing else except Agrippa's soul. He's gripped by the fact that Agrippa is on his way to damnation. And that's all he's concerned about. I would that you and everybody who's hearing me would hear these words and become as me except for the chains. Because he was burdened for Agrippa and everybody else that was hearing him. You know, I'm convinced today that so many of us really are not burdened for lost people. That we really don't cry out from our heart that oh, that they would be saved. Oh, that they would have what we have. Oh, that they would, would come to a knowledge of the life that comes from God. I'm convinced that so many of us are just okay with lost people. 
We're just okay with them. Especially the ones that we don't particularly like. The ones who are different from us, who have a different skin color from us, speak a different language from us, wear different clothes than we do. The ones who hate us. The ones who would like to do us harm. We're just okay with them being lost. Or those around us whose lives are so contradictory to the teachings of Scripture. We're just okay with them being lost. Folks, hear the heart of Paul. Paul's heart cries out, I would that you would be as I am. That you would have what I have. Is your heart burdened in that way? Is your heart burdened for those who are outside of Christ? Does it ache? Remember what Paul said about the Romans? I would give my salvation for theirs. I would suffer damnation if it meant their salvation. Speaking of Jews, now were the Jews very nice to Paul? Everywhere he went, they beat him up, threw him in prison, went into every single church he planted and and caused problems. And yet, would that they would have what he has. Is that your heart this morning? 